listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. Good morning. That, that, might be, uh, that might be the quickest of videos ever stopped on me. I wasn't quite ready. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you lose something valuable? What do you do? Just a question. Yeah, look for it. Got a lot of things. I'm married. I've been married 11 years to my wife. And um, like most married couples, we have wedding rings to show that we're married, right? And and it's basically a sign to the rest of the world that, hey, I'm taken by a hottie. Back up off. Something like that. I don't don't know what the Bible says about wedding rings, but that's what we say. And so, but one day I was was playing in this river in the, uh, you might know about the Pamlico Tar River Basin down near Washington, North Carolina. We were playing on the river. It was the 4th of July. It was a beautiful day. We were just uh, off my friend's dock, and we were just, just playing in the water, man, having a good time. And everything was going great until I tried this prank on my wife. See, this is what I was going to do. I was going to sneak up behind her, and I was going to just like, bear hug her, and I was just going to dunk her in the ground. You know, like how a fifth grader flirts with a girl he likes? Like, it was kind of like that. And it was awesome until, as I had lifted her up in the air, I felt my wedding ring slip off my wet finger and bloop, right to the bottom of the river. And so immediately, we're in like four or five feet of water, and so I'm just like, stop! My we- I dropped my wedding ring, you know, and everybody stops, and we just dive into the water. If you've ever tried to see underneath the waters of an eastern North Carolina river, yeah, good luck with that. I mean, you probably came up with mud in your eyes. It's like a .3-inch, you know, visibility or something. You can't see. And so, but that wasn't going to stop me. I was literally like, I-, I was plunging down, 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 and trying to, and-, and since I couldn't see, I was laying myself on the bottom of the riverbank, at bed, and I was just stretching my arms to see how I could feel anything on my fingertips or my arms or my feet. My friend Will was a trooper, man. He stayed with me the whole time, and we were up and down and up and down and up and down. Long after my wife had given up the search, long after our friends had given up the search, Will and I just looked and looked until we just couldn't dive anymore. We couldn't find it. The sad news is we never, never found that wedding ring. We didn't. Uh, the good news is I learned that you can get the exact same wedding ring for 99 cents on eBay, so I should have done that the first time. <laughs> But it's a true story. I took it to a jeweler. He was like, wow, what did you pay for this? I was like, shipping? <laughs> That's all I paid. So just, there's the scam. Um, what do you do when you lose something that's valuable to you? One time, we lost a dog. This dog was in our family for, I, I think she was close to 15 years old. I might be up by a couple years, but she was an old golden retriever. You ever had one of those dogs? It was a family dog. Her name was Sandy. And man, she was just, she was just there always. It was, it was always Sandy, right? And, and she had gotten old and she was a little bit senile. And we had left the house for the night and it was a really bad storm hit. And she just freaked out. Old dogs can do that, especially Goldens. And so she's freaking out. She literally busts through the back door, the screen door, or the, the uh, storm door of the back porch. And then she busts through the fence in the backyard and into the storm. She was gone. And we weren't home. And so for some reason that night she didn't have her tags on. And we showed up and we know she's gone. So what do we do? You ever lost a dog? And you go in the neighborhood. It's raining. It's dark. We've got the flashlights. We're like, Sandy, Sandy, here, girl. Woohoo. And you're, you're yelling. You go and knock on neighbor's doors. You're looking at the places that you found her before. You're looking, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. Didn't find her. Next day, looking and looking and looking. We're hanging up signs. We're putting the ad in the paper. Looking and looking. Didn't find her. We looked for days, weeks. And I don't know how long we would have continued looking if it hadn't have been for my dad, who went to the public library to drop off some books, uh, to return the books, and he walked in and he heard the librarian, and she was talking about the storm that had happened a few weeks back. And she says something like, yeah, and I heard this 
thing outside, and I went on our porch, and there was this poor, pitiful, wet golden retriever, and she was just terrified, and she was in the corner, and I coaxed her inside, and she just hasn't been right, but I've checked with my neighbors, and I can't find it. My dad's like hearing the story, and he's like, um, I'm sorry, what were you talking about? <laughs> it was our dog. It was Sandy. We found her. We found her. We were so excited. We brought her home, and she was so glad to get back to her little matted up pad of nasty that she slept on, but she was like so glad to get home. What do you do when you lose something that's valuable to you? I was a very young kid when, uh, one more story on that, one young kid, I was up in Raleigh, my dad had taken us to see a hockey game. This was before the hurricanes were in Raleigh, there was, a, there was a, a minor league team there, you might remember the Carolina Ice Caps, they played there, and so we'd go to see games, yeah, a couple thousand people there, it was, it was a great game, I remember being so much fun, uh, I think I was probably nine years old, that'll make my brother about seven, we had a blast, and everything was going well until we got out into the parking lot, when the unthinkable nightmare happened. So we were walking along, and suddenly my younger brother, Jason, was just gone. But we, we, didn't, we couldn't find him. He was nowhere to be found. You ever lost a kid? Like in the, in, in the grocery store, at a shopping place, or at a park, and it's terrifying. But normally within a few minutes, hey, hey, where are you? Oh, you're hiding in the clothes rack. You know, they always hide there. They think that's so fun. And you're like, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> but that's not what happened with my brother. He was just gone. We couldn't find him. And, and my, bro, my dad frantically begins to search. There are thousands, I don't know, 10,000 people there maybe. It was, a, it was at Dorton Arena right there where the, the state fairgrounds are. And I mean, it was terrifying. I remember seeing my dad's face and knowing this is, this is serious. And so, I, and he's grabbing like complete strangers. Have you seen my son? He's about this tall, this color hair, this color shirt. His name is Jason. You saying, oh, you haven't? He grabs the next guy. And yeah, have you seen my son? And, and he goes and he talks to a police officer and they radio it in. And still we haven't found my brother. And we're looking everywhere. And we're standing up on top of, of benches, like uh, outside in the parking lot. We're looking and we're, Jason, Jason, answer me. If you can hear me, answer me. It was, it was terrifying to hear my dad tell the story. Still today, it's years later, my brother's grown. To hear him tell the story today, my dad says, one of the most terrifying times of his life. And the story that I would tell of my life today might be dramatically different if it hadn't gone the way that it did. What, what happened was my dad had one last idea, one shred of hope of something we could do. And so he's like, let's just walk to the car. So we bolt out into the parking lot. We go and go, and the, the parking lot is thinned out by now because everybody's leaving and there, standing beside our car, a little blonde-headed boy, oblivious to how much trouble he had just caused. <laughs> and what had happened, he'd actually done a good thing. What had happened was he was walking, and he knew where the car was, and, and he walked, and he just kept walking, and then he is seven or whatever, so he's not paying attention, and then he's just, is that the car? And he has no idea that he got separated from us, and so he had been taught, when you get lost, what do you do? Stay put. <laughs> so he was like, I'm not leaving. I'm standing right here. Somebody's yelling my name. Nope. <laughs> I will not be tempted. <laughs> What do you do when you lose something as valuable to you? Let me ask you one other question. What do you do when you find it? What do you do when you find it? Last week we started telling this story that Jesus told. We're in this series called Totally Wasted. And uh, it's the story of the prodigal son. I told it last week, the word prodigal, is, it's, it's a word that means wasteful or extravagant. And so we're kind of playing off of that idea and say totally wasted. It's a story about uh, a boy, a man, who goes to his father and he says, I want all of my inheritance now. 
which is a slap in his dad's face because his dad was still alive, <laughs> not dead yet, want my inheritance. And he skips town with all the inheritance, and when he gets out of town, he ends up living this wasteful life, and he blows all of his inheritance. We find him at the end of his little story there, completely poor. He's feeding pigs. He's, he's, he's got no food to eat. He's homeless, and he makes this decision. I'm going to go back home, right? Remember that? I'm going to go back home. And all along the way, on the way home, he's kind of reciting this little speech to himself. I'm, I'm going to ask my dad if he'll accept me back as a servant. If he'll just let me be a servant in his household, that'd be awesome. But then the father sees him coming before he gets there, and the father runs out to greet the son, and they throw a party. What do you do when you lose something valuable? Well, if you ask me, what is this story about? A good answer would be, it's a story about a young man who wastes his inheritance. It is. That's, that's a good answer. But as I dig into what I think Jesus was trying to convey when he told this story, I think there's more to it than that. I think not only is this a story about a boy who goes off and wastes his inheritance, but more so it's a story about the father who waited. About the father who waited. And I want to take a look at the story and to kind of get a fuller context of this story, um, let's rewind just a little bit. We're going to be in the Bible today in the book of Luke. Luke was a, uh, an author that wrote about the life and teachings of Jesus. And so if you want to turn there, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have them for free. So please take one before you leave today. They're the little green paperback Bibles that are kind of spread along the floor. And I think there might even be some in the back near the coffee. But we're in Luke chapter 15. It'll also be up on the screen behind me. And I want to give you the context of what's going on because Jesus tells this story about the wasteful son, but it's not like Jesus is just sitting around the campfire and he's got like the flashlight shining up on his face. He's like, and then the son spent all the inheritance. And he's just telling stories to his disciples. He actually, when he tells stories, he does it for a very specific reason. Jesus tells stories to teach. That's why he tells stories. So why is he telling this story? He actually tells this story in a series of stories in Luke chapter 15. And, uh, but it starts like this. Why is he telling the stories? Let's look at chapter 15, start just 1 and 2. 15, 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners to eat with him. I want to unpack that, that little verse. It's the first verse in chapter 15, and it sets up why Jesus is telling the story. So in case you haven't heard, Jesus, when he went around teaching people, he didn't just go around to find all the, the goody-goody do-gooders. Like, he didn't do that. He didn't go to, to look for all the religious experts and the people from the, 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 the religious schools and pull them in because they were all in the right boat. That's not what he did. Actually, what Jesus did was he got the worst people of society around him, and he started to tell them about the love of God, and that's what he's doing here. He would get the untouchables. He'd get the people that nobody wanted to hug, that nobody wanted to love. He'd get the sinners and the tax collectors. And let's just look at this, this verse, first, the first half there. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now the tax collectors and the sinners. Now this isn't just um, a phrase that means nothing. Actually, when Luke tells this, his original readers would have easily picked up that, I mean, he's hanging out with scum. Like, Jesus is hanging out with scum. Who's he hanging out with? First, tax collectors. Tax collectors, we, we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. It's all throughout Jesus' life when he's working with these tax collectors. They were seen as these turncoat, just losers who had betrayed their family and their country, and they've gone to work for the Roman government. That, that's what these tax collectors were seen as. They took advantage of people. They were dishonest. They were disloyal. And they were basically seen as good-for-nothings. 
I mean, by, by the average Jewish citizen. When you saw a tax collector coming, you're just like, ah, here comes that jerk, tax collector. So to say that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors, that's like saying, you, you've betrayed your people. You're hanging out with tax collectors. Huh? The next thing, you, what, are you going to become a tax collector? You're going to tax collector school? Like you're trying to join their club? And so that's the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is a very generic phrase. We see sinners. We're like, what were they doing? Well, if you look at the stories Jesus was involved in, he's hanging out with, with prostitutes. That's one, one of the major people that he hung out with. I don't know particularly why. I think there were a lot of them around the region. But they were people who were in need of, of love, and they were people in need of, of care. And Jesus had something that no other man was offering, which was just genuine compassion from God. And so he hangs out with these people, but he's also hanging out with these liars. He's hanging out with cheaters. He's hanging out with scumbags. We go down a list of all the, the, the worthless, quote-unquote, people that Jesus is hanging out with. He also is hanging out with sick people, like terminally ill people, which you might think, well, that's, that's not sinners. But in this culture, like if you had a really bad disease, people assumed that God had struck you with a disease because of something you had done wrong. So he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and people with bad diseases, like and so the, the Jewish leaders didn't like this. And so what do they say? They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were very conservative religious leaders. And what they want to do is distance themselves from people who kind of would tarnish their image. And they felt like Jesus was too good of a teacher to be hanging out with this kind of crowd. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm hanging out with sinners, I'm hanging out with tax collectors. You want to know why? When Jesus has to approach these people, a lot of times the, the, the religious leaders, he'll do it a lot of different ways. Sometimes he's just kind of like, kind of like snippy with them, like he's kind of like sarcastic. And I love it. Like, man, that was a zinger, Jesus. You just nailed him. Sometimes he's, sometimes he's downright mean. He's like, look, you're, you're a brood of vipers. You're a den of foxes. You're just... You're not any good. Stop being so oppressive to these people. He's talking to the religious leaders of the time. And sometimes when he talks to them, he just tells stories, which must have been super annoying to them. <laughs> but these are the stories he tells. He tells these three stories. The first one is a story about a shepherd who loses his sheep, and, uh, and, and, and he's lost his sheep. In fact, it's, it's very similar to the story of, uh, of us losing our dog, right? Very popular, I mean, very, very common idea. They lose something that's very valuable to you. And he talks about this shepherd who leaves all of those sheep behind him, and he's, and he's going to go find this one sheep, and he tells that story. And then he tells another story. He says this woman, she had some silver pieces, and she lost them in her house. And she couldn't find them, so she tears her house apart looking for them. And then he tells the story about the prodigal son. The story about a father who lost his son. It's as if Jesus is saying... What do you do when you lose something that is valuable to you? Because they got this question, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response is, well, they're valuable to me. I want to be with them. I want to find them. They are lost, and they need to be found. And so... We find Jesus in this story about the prodigal son, and that's the context. And last week I told it from kind of the son's point of view. This week, what I want to do is pick up the story right where the son has decided to go and, and confront his father and ask him to be invited back into the home. And so this is where we pick up the story. Basically, the son is walking down the road and he's rehearsing this speech. This is at least how I imagine it. 
He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no, worth, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Okay, that's pretty good. Wait, let's try it again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer to be called one of your sons. Make me like one of your hired men. No, no, no. It's got to be better than that. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And make me like one of your hired men. And he's, I'm just imagining he's rehearsing this speech over and over. It's like when someone gives you their phone number and they're like, 910-555-2864. You're like, okay, got it. 910-555-2864. You know what I'm saying? You repeat it over and over because you want to get it right. You don't want to miss anything. And this is how I imagine this son doing this. And, and as he's walking along, this pivotal moment happens. It says in chapter 15, verse 20, the second half of verse 20, it says this. But while he was still a long way off... His father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son. Now, this is a pretty cool verse, and we can get all warm and fuzzy thinking about it. Oh, he missed his buddy, right? But I think there's the part of the story that's told between the lines. Let, let me ask you, what has this father been doing since the son left? I don't know. Jesus, this is a story that I'm guessing Jesus made up to make his point. I'm, I'm not sure what the father was doing, but I want to read between the lines because I want to imagine what, what I might be doing. I imagine it like this, day one. Father's sitting in his house. He's had a long day of work, eating his supper. The youngest son comes in and goes, Dad, hey, listen, I want all my inheritance. I'm leaving. Huh? I imagine that a little fight breaks out. What? Are you kidding me? No. Do, do you know what the neighbors will think if you leave and they know that I've given you all our inheritance? I imagine, and I imagine he's like, I, I said some things I didn't mean. I, I was kind of harsh on him. And he went to bed, and he's thinking about it that night. Didn't get much sleep, but he goes, you know what? Fine. If he wants to take the money and run, fine. And so at some point he decides, okay, you, you can have. You can have your inheritance. Does that make you happy? I imagine that's day one. Day two. Day two rolls around, and maybe the son is packing his bags and and the father's like, man, I can't stand watching his smug little face walk around the house, knowing that he's got all of my treasures, knowing what he's about to do, knowing that he's about to leave us with nothing. But there's this little heartbreak happening, right? My boy, like, why could you do this to me? And then he leaves. And, and that afternoon, man, he's just kind of walking through the house, and he's kind of cooling off, and he's kind of settling in on what's going on. And he walks back to maybe his son's room, and there's an empty bed. It's still unmade. Maybe there's like a, still a wet towel on the floor from the shower this morning. You know what I mean? Stuff taken off the walls. Can you imagine that, that feeling? And it starts to sink in like he's, he's gone. And he goes and he sits on the porch maybe and he's sitting in his, his rocking chair and he's looking down the road. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll come back. It doesn't come back. And so dad goes to bed that night and he's just tossing, he's turning. He doesn't get much sleep that night. That's day two. Maybe day three rolls around. And he's just, he's got to get back to work. I mean, you can't just shut down the farm, right? You got you to get back to work. And so he tells his son, listen, your brother's not here anymore, so we're going to we're gonna have to pick up a little extra work. And I'm thinking about hiring an extra farmhand. And the, this, the other son, he's just mad. Like, come on, dad, really? You gave him the inheritance? Huh, fine. And he's, I'm going to go off and I'm going to take care of some things in the yard. And dad's like, okay. And he's hiring the other guy. And he's trudging along, getting his work done. But he's thinking about his son. And, and every chance he gets, he looks up at the road. And he's like... Is that somebody? Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll come back. And he gets his work done, and he sits on the porch, and he just he looks at the road. And he goes to bed, but he doesn't get much sleep that night. And it goes on like this. I don't know how long, how long does it take to spend your inheritance? I don't know how much it was. 
But for that period of time, Dad's sitting at home. And I imagine he gets back into the swing of things, and he kind of becomes numb to it a little bit, but he still sees a glimmer on the road, and he's, ah, is that him? And it turns out just being Ed from the neighborhood going to town to get some corn feed or something. And he's like, oh, Ed, stop going into the city. Thought you were my son. And passersby come by, and he's like, hey, have you heard anything? I was a, anybody, you weren't anybody that looks remarkably like me? Any, no, haven't seen them? Okay, just curious. If you do, tell them I, I miss them. Yeah. Okay, bye. And he's sitting on his porch at night, and he's looking at the road, and he goes to bed, and he can't sleep, and over, and over, and over, and over again. Put yourself in the Father's shoes just briefly. And now imagine this day. When, when, when suddenly, I don't know if he finished his day's work, and he's sitting on the porch, maybe he's sipping his coffee, and he's, he looks up, he sees somebody on the road again, and he's like, it's probably Ed going in for some cornmeal. I say, it's just a guy by himself. That's definitely a man. He's getting closer and closer. And, and that, that man looks a lot like my son, I tell you. I'm seeing him everywhere, I guess. He kind of walks like my son. That's, that's my son. That's my son. And he takes off running to his son. He is so, incidentally, side note, imagine that you're the son. Remember, he's like rehearsing this speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be in your household. I'm going to make me one of your servants. And you look up and you see your dad like bolting towards you. You're like, oh no, this is not going to be good. Like he's going to tackle me and pig tie me. This is going to be bad. And he sees him. This is the rest of the story. This is behind the lines. And so when you have this verse, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran to his son Man, I just imagine this moment of jubilation. And so the father, as he's running, he says in, in uh, Luke 15, 22, this is what he says. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, bring the ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. This is a story, not only about a son who wanders off, but about a father who runs. And I need to tell you one more little piece of this story that you might not be aware of. In the Middle East, especially in the first century, in the time period when Jesus is telling this story, there were a lot of things men did. Men were responsible for a lot of things, but there were a lot of things that men did. But there's one thing that a man did not do, run. He didn't. It was considered culturally yeah, taboo. A man does not run anywhere. He's dignified. He's respectable. Whatever it is over there that I've got to get to, it will still be there when I get there. <laughs> I'm taking my time. I'm walking. It's a posture of respectability. But do you think that that was on this man's mind at all? I do not think that it was an accident that Jesus said, and the father ran to greet him. This is a story about a father who runs. Last week we talked about something, uh, we, we talked about something that King David had said. King David was a king in the Old Testament of the Bible, king of the Jewish people. And last week when we talked about King David, we talked about how King David knew all about being brokenhearted. He really did. He knew about being far from God, and he writes this thing that we read last week from Psalms. He said that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. 
He's close to the broken hearted. And, and why? Well, I think it's because when we are downcast, when we have hit rock bottom, when we're broken hearted, we're most likely to listen to God's voice, right? And that's what we said last week. David also says something up that I think really tells us a lot about the God, the Father who runs. And, and I don't know, if, and maybe this has escaped you, or maybe especially if you weren't here last week. As Jesus is telling the stories to these religious leaders, he's saying, the Father is God, and the Son is you. And your Father misses you, and he will run to greet you. Let's read what David writes about this Father, about God. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I rise with the wings of the dawn and I sail afar to the side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place, when I was woven, woven together in, my, in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. See, David, who knew a little something about this compassionate God who would always be seeking him, is saying, God, you know me. You see my every move. You even knew me before I was born. You made me. You're my father, and you love me. More than anything else, God is a loving Father. He is. He calls himself that. We see it throughout the Bible. And, you know, when it comes to love, God is the author. I love what one of Jesus' friends, John, John was probably one of Jesus' closest friends while he was on earth, and he also wrote several books in the Bible. And he says in 1 John 4, 8, he says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. John is saying, God is love. It's not something that he does. It's what he is. God is love. It's how he operates. God loves. And it, it may be difficult for you this morning. I don't know where everybody in this room is today, obviously. And it might be hard for, for you to hear that right now, that God is love. Because maybe there are some things about God that confuse you. There are things about God that you're like, I don't get God. I look at the Bible, and it, I don't understand how some of the stories about you are about a loving God. You know, I'd be a liar if I stood up here on the stage and said that, yeah, I, I've never been confused by God. I, I've been confused by God. I look at some of the stories in the Bible, and I'm like, I don't really understand. But I tell you this, time after time, I put my trust in knowing that God is love. Because there are some things as a father that I have to do for and to and with my children that might confuse them. In fact, it might not even seem loving. Discipline might not seem loving at the time. Rules might not seem loving at the time. So there are times when my kids are probably confused and like, all right, well, okay. <laughs> but in the end, I'll tell you this, there's, they have no doubt that their dad loves them. And God is loving. So there might be some things that confuse you about God. I get that. 
But history tells us, the Bible tells us, my life experience tells us, and I could line people up and we won't do uh, the Cupid shuffle or the Casper slide or whatever that dance was we did earlier. We'll line up here and people could stand right here and one by one by one people in this room could tell you that God's love is real. He's a father who runs. He's a father who loves. And I got to tell you, it's given me great comfort in the moments that I've been confused by God to rest in the knowledge that he loves me. And I say that because as Jesus talks about the father in this story, he depicts a man doing some things that are really crazy. And I'm going to talk about two of them really quick, two crazy things that the father in the story does. The first one is this. The father loved his son enough to allow him to leave. Think about that. The father could have done a lot of different things when his son asked for his inheritance. One thing he could have refused. No. The other thing he could have done is said, uh, actually what you just did is a, is a violation of our law. And so uh, I'm going to take you to the village elders and have you punished. That was a completely viable option. Yet he lets his son leave. God loves you enough to let you leave home. You know, God really loves you, and he wants what's best for you, but he wants you to love him back. He wants you to stay with him at home in his will. That's where he wants you to be, but he's not going to force you. In fact, if you don't want to be there, he's like, all right, okay. And don't think it doesn't break his heart. And don't think that day by day by day, he's not like the father who's going, day one, couldn't sleep. Day two, sat by the road and watched. Day three, got in an argument with the other son because you weren't here. <laughs> right? God is totally heartbroken when we leave home, but he loves us enough to let us go because love, true love, involves choice. And you have to choose to love someone, and you have to choose to love God. And God could have created us as these mindless robots. They just did whatever he said. And we would have been very compliant, but not loving. So God gave us choice. He loves us enough to let us leave home. And maybe that's been you some. Maybe it's been you a lot. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're like, I've turned my back on God and I've walked down the road. And God loves you enough to let you do it, even though it breaks his heart. It's kind of a crazy thing the father did. The father does one other crazy thing. The father loves his son enough to run. Nobody run. Men don't run. They didn't run. That was the culture. You just didn't run. We have a God who loves us enough to run. See, God is waiting for each of us, and we're so valuable to him, and he's heartbroken because we've left. But when he sees us decide to turn around, he throws a stinking party. He runs, and it doesn't matter if it seems undignified for him to do things like humiliate himself and come to earth and live as a human being. That doesn't bother him. It doesn't bother him that he had to come down, and while he was here, he hung out with the lowest of the low and the broken of the broken, and he hugged people that nobody would hug, and he was with people that were so sick that they might cause other people to have disease. He didn't care because he said, you know what? I love these people enough to run. I will be undignified. I will be somehow socially unconventional because I love them enough to run because when he sees us coming down the road back towards the house he is so excited you remember that movie Jerry Maguire it's probably one of the most quotable movies ever um, remember Mary, uh, that there, was, there was Tom Cruise and he was the main guy in the movie and, uh, and, and he was in a relationship with Renee Zellweger and they, and they it's a long movie but basically near the end they get to this point where Tom Cruise has totally ruined the relationship and he's been a punk and everything and at the end he's, he's got this speech rehearsed Right? He's like, I, I, I want to tell you this thing. So he goes and he goes to Renee and he starts to tell her how sorry he is and how much of a jerk he's been and you complete me and all this stuff. And in, in, the, in the moment, he's just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. You see Renee Zellweger's face and she's starting to cry. 
And finally, she just interrupts him. She says, shut up. Shut up. You had me at what? Hello. You had me at hello. Okay, that's one of the sappiest uh, movie illustrations ever. But I think it totally represents what happens here with us and God. Let me tell you why I think that. This son has realized how much he needs a father. He realizes how much he has uh, gone against his father's will, and he is, uh, he's acutely aware of the fact that he doesn't deserve forgiveness. And I want you to notice what the father doesn't say. The father doesn't run up to him and say, hmm, son, you've really disappointed me, and so I'm really going to have to think about this. I'm going to have to think about whether or not I'm going to invite you back into my house. Uh, give me a few days, and I'll decide if I can forgive you. He doesn't do that. Notice what else he doesn't do. He doesn't make his son earn his forgiveness. Okay, I tell you what, if you'll do this... Clean a few horse stables, stick around for two or three years, and we'll see. pay me back. He doesn't say that. The father doesn't say, I'll forgive you, but here's what you have to do first. Or, or I'll forgive you, but only if you do this or don't do this. He doesn't make him earn his forgiveness. His attitude is, I don't care. I don't care where you were. I don't care what you've been doing. I don't care how bad and ugly it might have gotten. I'm just so glad that you're home. We can get through the rest of it. I'm just so glad that you're home. And maybe, maybe you're feeling a little bit wasted right now. Like your life feels wasted. Like you've had some opportunities and you wasted them. And you've known some relationships that you've wasted. And I think that we have the same mentality sometimes that the son had. Okay, if I can get the speech right. Dear God, Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son or daughter or whatever. And here's the thing. I'm going to quit cussing and drinking. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm going to cancel my internet and my cable. And I won't go to that place again. And we got this list. And we got this list. And we got this list. And we go to God and we start this speech. Father, I am unworthy to be in your presence. And we start talking and God just rudely interrupts us. And he goes, shut up. Shut up. You had me at Father. You have me at Father. That's all you had to say. And I'm so glad that you're home and we can work through the mess. Let's get back to the story. We'll wrap it up. Luke chapter 15, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robes and put it on his feet, and his sandals and put it on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. This is the best part. The prodigal son gets a new life. He gives him shoes. He gives him a ring that kind of indicates, you're back in my family. You've re-inherited everything. Not much left, thanks to you. <laughs> but welcome back. We're going to have a party. And before this story ends, there is celebration. I mean, they throw down. You, you can just picture the son and the father, like, doing the Macarena or, like, I don't know, the Cupid Shuffle or something. I, I picture them more as, like, um, uh, electric slide type people. I don't know. That's just me. But they are getting down, man. They're partying. There's music. The neighbors are like, oh, son must be home. Sweet. I had hoped for that. What do you do when you lose something valuable? God? God searches, God's patient, and when he sees you, he runs. And when he's found you, he celebrates. 
God celebrates the homecoming of all prodigals. All of us who are wasted, he's glad to have us back. And, and a party breaks loose in this story. And actually, as Jesus tells the story, he says that every time somebody comes to, to give their life back to God, the angels in heaven throw a party. It's a big deal. It's a celestial event. God welcomes us home with celebration. And when someone is totally wasted and finds their way back to the Father, the Father runs 